The following content is from Snowbird Wilderness Outfitters, a gospel-driven high-adventure camp in western North Carolina. Go to swoutfitters.com to learn more about our camps and conferences. Enjoy the message. Hey, what's up, everybody? We're going to go ahead and get started. If you guys want to go ahead and find a seat. Um, all right, I'm going to just open it in a word of prayer, um, and then uh, let's, we'll dive in. Let's pray together. God, we love you. I pray, um, God, we're asking for a refreshing to be on all these leaders in this room. God, I pray that you would um, bring healing and encouragement, that you would um, continue to fuel their fire, God, that you would give them a vision for their student ministries, for their lives, for their homes. Thank you for them, Lord. We ask that you'd speak to us today, God. I just pray that you would um, just use us, use me today, and uh, and remove me as well. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, so for those of you that don't know me, my name's John Rulo. I am originally from San Diego, California, born and raised. I grew up nominally Catholic, not a Christian. I found Jesus when I was 19. Miles McPherson, a former football player evangelist, was out there, shared the gospel. I gave my life to Christ. Literally two months later, I was on a plane flying out to Liberty University. I knew nothing about Liberty Christian schools or Christianity. I, you know, I had literally just gotten saved, but I was on fire for God. I go to Liberty University, and, um, and I was just, I fell in love with the scriptures. I fell in love with Jesus. I fell in love with ministry. I was a youth pastor in Lynchburg after I graduated college at a Living Word Baptist Church in Lynchburg, Virginia. It's actually the church that Brody had gone to when he was at Liberty. It was a little bit of our connection. I knew Zach at Liberty and Rob and some of those guys. They were a little bit older, or I started later in school, so I think we're the same age, but they were, you know, upperclassmen, and so I thought they were really cool, and I wasn't. You know how it is. Um, but anyway, so I, I ended up bringing my students to Snowbird. We, we brought our students here for four years. I met my wife here. My wife uh, found Jesus through this ministry or reconnected her, her life to Jesus in a deep and meaningful way. And we've been doing ministry ever since. Uh, about 10 years ago, nine years ago, we decided um, to move to California. We moved back to Los Angeles, kind of pursuing the Lord's calling, trying to figure what that, out, what, what that was. Uh, I ended up serving on staff at a church out there as a teaching pastor, and then we planted a church uh, there in Los Angeles, and then um, we moved back here on sabbatical. So COVID did a number on our church plant. We were right in the launch stage, and my ego did not want to let that go. Um, I wanted to stay there, but the Lord had been, been patiently and graciously nudging my heart in a different direction. It took me a year to obey that. Don't judge me. That's just me being honest. And we moved back to Andrews. My in-laws live here in Andrews, so it's kind of a win-win. Every time I'd come back for a holiday or whatever, I get a chance to be around Snowbird and the team and um, just the faithful ministry. You guys understand because this is why you're here. Uh, I, I've... I'm sure you do the same, but I collect ministry partners, people that are passionate and living a real life for Jesus because you'll need those, and I hold on to those. Uh, Brody and the team has been that for me, wise counsel when I need it, when you're navigating difficult situations, and they have been faithful brothers and sisters in Christ. Um, and if you've been in ministry for long enough, you've seen other people fall away, so it's a blessing. Uh, me and Brody uh, did a podcast together on, on SWO. He we have we just we sit down and we talk and, and a lot of our conversations is centered around this idea of culture and what's happening in our culture. So he invited me on the podcast and we talked through that. And so you know he said, "Hey, I, I'd love for you to teach a breakout, but I'd love for you to press into the culture conversation." Well, that's a that's a broad conversation, right? So I thought, 
What I'd like to do today is I'd just like to um, continue a conversation or maybe start a conversation that I know you're probably already having in your mind and give you permission with other youth pastors in the room to kind of be talking through this because what we've experienced is a major shift in culture, right? Or we're feeling that right now. If you're not feeling that, trust me, you're going to feel that soon. So what I'd like to do today is just kind of, I'm going to lay out a little bit of a framework um, I'm going to give you, hopefully, some encouraging statistics. I want to give you one insight. There's probably a lot of insights. I'm not, I'm not an expert in this by no means, um, but there's been a, um, a common thread through so many people that I've been having conversations with and interviewing and talking with in regards to what, um, I don't want to say what is working because the gospel is always working, but effective ministry. Can I say that? Okay. What I'm not going to do is I'm not going to uh, pretend that there's some new breakthrough strategy or whatever, like Jesus is still on the throne, you know, the Bible is still powerful, the gospel still saves. This is the conversation that we're having, right? We're just trying to learn how to contextualize it in something that, in the culture that has shifted. Cool? All right, sweet. So uh, a couple years ago, um, actually, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start different. I was in the last week of camp here. I was in service, and we were, I was worshiping. And you ever, you ever in a worship service, and God kind of lays on your heart, somebody that's in your ministry or one of your ministries in, your, in the past, former student or whatever? God laid on my heart a young lady that used to be in our church plant. And so I just kind of started praying for her as I was worshiping. So I shot her a text message, and I said, hey, you know, just want to check in, see how you're doing. She was part of our ministry, part of our family. You know, um, we, we've walked together with her for, I don't know, six or seven years. And, and uh, she said, yeah, I'm doing great. Actually, the text message I sent her is I said, um, hey, just checking in. God had laid you on my heart. And she said, yeah, things are, um, things are going great. Thanks for checking in. She goes, what did God lay on your heart? with for me about and I was like I just want to see how you and Jesus are right um God just laid her on my heart I you know and I was like I just want to see how you and Jesus are she ends up responding and saying you know we have different views now and I've expanded my my mind and um you know I'm not as narrow-minded and you know some you got to be careful with these text messages that you send out because they can come across as judgmental I was like, what? Continued to press in the conversation, and honestly, I, I, it, you can ask my wife, my, I, was just, I, was, I was trying to be soft, but my heart was broken. I wasn't angry at her, I was, I wanted, I was angry at the devil, right? I, I was angry at the enemy, because we labor. We labor for the people in our ministry. You know, the funny thing is, and you're probably experiencing this, you'll be judged as a Christian if you follow Jesus because that makes you judgmental, and you'll be judged as a Christian if you don't follow Jesus because that makes you hypocritical. So just be prepared because we're going to get judged. <laughs> That's the good news. No, I'm just joking. But there's been a shift. And when I say a shift in culture, believe it or not, we used to live in a world in which there was social pressure for you to go to church on Sunday. We used to live in a culture in which there was social pressure for you not to, you know, uh, live together before you were married and definitely not to have sex. And believe it or not, there used to be no social pressure for you ha to have to put pronouns in your bio. 
how things have changed so quickly, haven't they? And I don't know about you, but, but I've been, I, I feel like everything's been moving so fast. I've been just trying to, to like, I'm playing catch up and I'm trying to understand because the one thing that I know, that culture may shift, but God's always doing something. That I know God is still moving. I read this book uh, a couple years ago, and, it, and I just want to share with you because it gave me such a good framework for me to kind of step back and see um, the world. Mark Yarhouse is a Christian counselor. He, he writes a lot on biblical sexuality. I would highly recommend him on any of the issues, and he wrote a book called uh, Gender Dysphoria and the Shifting Culture. It's really good, but one of the things that I took out of that book is a, is a framework that he uses to kind of uh, to view three dominant cultures that exist in America. The first framework is what he calls a traditional framework. A traditional framework actually comes all the way back from pre-enlightenment days when we came out of the the you know a pagan culture and we were moving to you know more traditional values biblical values there is one god and that has carried over into america and if you believe in god and jesus and you know you go back i uh, never mind i'm not going to say that um but there's a lot of people that have this traditional view of the world that they believe in a god and they believe that that God is an authority in the world, okay? Well, then there was a shift during the Enlightenment period, and there's, a, there's this second, and well, let's call this more of a modern view. Modern view, secular humanism, right? This was a rejection of the traditional religions, definitely a rejection of religion, and as a rejection of that, it was a replacement of that with, you know, science and something different. That's where you have Charles Darwin, right? A rejection of the religion saying there has to be something that explains the world apart from that, so let's create a theory, right? The theory of evolution was actually birthed out of a rejection of traditional religion. That's also where you have the rise of like a utopian society apart from religion, right? You have David Hume, God is dead, birthed into Karl Marx, this utopian apart from God that we can create. That was kind of this secular humanistic idea in which the new authority was science, Right? But we still had things in common. So even though we grew up, most of us grew up, I grew up in that. If you're a Gen X, a millennial, you, kind of, you grew up in that, right, boomers? And it was this, this competition between science and the Bible. You remember those days, right? The, the, the debates, you know, evolution versus creationism. But the common thread between both of those is they still believed in truth. right? They just believed that they were getting at it from a different way. Science was the ultimate truth in the modern world, and maybe God was the ultimate truth in the traditional. Now I'm simplifying it, but that's just a framework. Then we move into what he calls, um, I'm just going to call it the postmodern worldview. Right? And the postmodern worldview was a rejection of absolutes, a rejection of absolute truth and truth in general, and an elevation of narrative, an elevation of story. Right? So that the, the narrative, whether it was true or factual or whether you could prove it, was actually elevated. And especially if the narrative, if you had enough people, that that gave you more authority. Right? So I'll give you an example. When you hear the statement, trans women are women, 
This is a narrative statement that they are proclaiming to be true. And the modern era, the people in the middle who elevate science are saying, wait a second, but biology says that this is the truth. And so there's a tension. And then the traditionalists over here are saying, no, 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 the Bible says this. And so you could see the three different frameworks. Now, within these frameworks, there's a lot of different ones, but that just kind of helped me to understand a little bit of these conversations that I'm having in this dominant worldview that's starting to take over. And there's a shift. Um, Mark Sayers, he's a pastor in Australia, has written a lot of books on culture, and he, he made this statement, and he says, you know, in a post-Christian world, you're not going back to a pagan society because you're still living in the Christian framework. But a post-Christian world is a rejection of that framework and a replacement with new gods. That helped me understand things a whole lot. And in this postmodern world, when all you have is narrative and you don't have anything that you're calling an absolute truth, you know what gets elevated in a postmodern world when narrative is king? Self. Self. Right? Because it's your story, it's your truth. You get to decide what it is. And if there's enough people that agree with you, then even all more power. So that's just a, a little framework. How many of you have experienced maybe in the last, let's say, four or five years, people that have just walked away from Jesus that were walking with Jesus in your ministries? Yep. How many of you experienced a major shift in culture that you thought, man, I never thought I'd see that in my town? Anybody? Yeah. I mean, the reality is, is culture has shifted and it started maybe on the big coastal cities, right? Los Angeles, New York, and that was it. And then it's moved to, you know, I'd say early 2000s, definitely in every major city. You can go to Atlanta, you know, it's not a, a Christian culture anymore. And you come up to Andrews kind of for that retreat, right? And, and listen, the culture might have not shifted in your town, but it shifted in every single one of your students' lives because this is where it exists, right? You can't retreat to Andrews if you're on your cell phone. <clears throat> so the reality of that is we no longer have a culture that is pulling people towards Jesus. We have a culture that is absolutely pulling people away from the things of God and celebrating it, and celebrating the rejection of God and its authority. So we can no longer expect to send our students, our, our people, us, whoever, we can no longer expect to send anybody out into the culture if they don't have a strong, personal, intimate relationship with Jesus and think that they're gonna stay faithful. You guys have done the, uh, the youth group illustration, right? We put two, you put a chair on stage, you have one person stand on, the other person pull, right? Ha anybody done the illustration? If not, it's free. You know, that's probably the best thing you'll get out of this sermon, right? One person say, actually, can I, can I borrow one of y'all? Now, you think it's easier for me to pull him up here or him to pull me down? Exactly, I just dislocated my shoulder. I'm gonna let you, thank you, my friend. <laughs> <laughs> that's a true story. I was like, that's a dumb idea. This man's arms are very strong. <laughs> I'm about to give you an illustration on pain and suffering. Uh, <clears throat> you, 
You've probably heard a ton of the statistics, right? You read a lot of the books. There was a, a, a study, I think it was a LifeWay study. I, I could be wrong on that. If I am, forgive me. But early 2000s that it talked about 70% of all the students that leave our student ministry walk away from Jesus. Heard that? Culture's change, has changed, is changing. and It's going to change. I want to give you the good news, though. The good news if you look out, if you look throughout human history, Christianity has always done really, really well as the underdog. In fact, Christianity has always thrived as the underdog. Come on. So I want to give you a couple more, two more studies. There's a, there's a Barna study from a couple years ago that was 18 to 35, and they, they did this study, and they said 64% of people are walking away from Jesus. But in that, there was this, there was this uh, group, one in 10 Christians, who were staying faithful to Jesus. They were, they, were, they, they were staying faithful. They were strong in the midst of culture. And so he broke this down, and he labeled this group of one in 10 resilient disciples. I love that. He labeled them resilient disciples. Now, I just want to share with you because I thought, okay, I'm ready. What does these resilient disciples look like? I'm like, are they like praying and fasting, you know, like 40 days like Jesus? You know what I mean? They're probably just like memorizing the whole Bible. What does a resilient disciple look like? And this is what it says in the study. It says, a resilient disciple was somebody who had made a commitment to Jesus who they believed was crucified and raised to conquer sin and death, was involved in the faith community beyond attendance at worship services and strongly affirmed that the Bible was inspired by God. What? That's it? Now here's the good news. That's it. You know, when you actually break down some of these studies, you realize that the language that a lot of people that call themselves Christians aren't really following Jesus. And that the work that you're doing in your ministry, you better believe it's powerful. That there's students that are committing their life to Jesus, that are walking faithfully with God, that you're teaching them about the power of God's word. And it says that alone has been strong enough for them to resist the tide of culture. And I acted like I was shocked, but I'm like, guess what? It's Jesus. It's not going to be some, some crazy new method or thing. It's Jesus. We actually just connected them with the real living God. We weren't playing Mickey Mouse anymore, right? It wasn't just lights and pizza, and, and I'm a youth pastor, trust me, we do everything, lights, pizza, anything that we can to get them in the door, right? Because we just want them to come to Jesus. I was a relevant, I was a relevant to culture guy. Because I, am, I'm, I want, because I came to Jesus at 19 and I didn't know him, and when I know him, I was like, oh my gosh, I want everybody to know him. And, and all, you know, you have that passion for Jesus, you're like, I'll do anything to try to get people in the door, and I just, we want to win people to Jesus. And I think in the midst of that movement, we forgot to teach them how to walk with Jesus. We were connecting them to a song, not to a living God. Okay. I, I felt myself about to go way, way off. Let me pull back. So I want to talk about a new starting point. Now this is 
I want to share with you just one insight, okay? There's probably a lot, and I just want to share with you one insight. I was talking recently to uh, Bobby Lane, actually two people. I, I've had multiple conversations. So let me share a statistic actually first. So a friend of mine is, uh, he's in London. He's over this program called Alpha, and um, Western Europe is very post-Christian, okay? He got invited into a new Barna study that's gonna come out in September, and it was focused just on teenagers. So they interviewed 25,000 teenagers, okay, Christian and non-Christian. And one of the questions on the survey was, what do you believe about Jesus? Now they gave multiple answers, they didn't let him fill in the blanks, so there was a bunch of different answers. But the number one answer that 25,000 Christians and non-Christians, and we don't know what they categorize as Christians, was he was crucified on the cross. I was like, what? You know, I remember growing up in my day, I thought it was like people don't know. The rise of the internet generation, they get information thrown at them all the time, don't they? But you want to know what the least selected answer was? That I can have a personal relationship with him and that he is active today. Mm. So, I'm gonna share a passage of scripture. I wanna set it up real quick. So I was talking to Bobby Lane. Bobby Lane, if you're familiar, he's a missionary birthed out of this community. He's uh, spent a lot of his life reaching unreached people groups and then he spent some time in, um, in post-Christian um, context and we were having this conversation and I was just saying, hey Bobby, I was like, you know, when you go into these environments, like how do you, how do you reach them? What, what's, where does the conversation even start? What, what happens? And he, we started to have this conversation and he said, he said, okay, I grew up in the South. I grew up hearing a lot of propositional truth. Let me give you, explain this. Propositional truth basically is a statement that is declaring something to be true. The grass is green, true. Two plus two is five, false, right? So I grew up in a community that was constantly telling me propositional truth, God loves you, true. But what I learned is people in these contexts, they're actually longing for experiential truth. Now let me give you an example. Propositional truth versus, I don't wanna say versus, because they're not at odds with each other. Truth is truth and it's the same. It's how people ex are ex experiencing it, okay? Give you a perfect example. Truth affirmed through experience. I know my wife loves me because she says, proposition, I, I know that my wife loves me not by just what she says, proposition, but what I experience in my relationship with her. Got it? Propositional truth, I love my wife, great. She experiences my love in this relationship. She knows it's true because of my relationship with her. These students that were surveyed, it's not that they don't know, it's that they're saying, I want to actually experience this love that you're talking about. Right, I, 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 want, I want to feel it, is it true? And, right, and let's, let's think about the images that we're showing all of these students, especially in America. How many times are we gonna see another pastor that stands up there with the big following and the big church and the big stuff, and the next thing you know, we hear about him falling? He's proclaiming the propositional truth, but the students are experiencing something completely different than what Jesus says. 
Wow. We need to prepare our students to be resilient by teaching them that God is alive and well in their life. And if they, can't, if they haven't experienced it in their life, guess where it's gonna start? They're gonna experience it in yours. It starts by your relationship with them. Now, I don't know if this is gonna blow your mind, but this blew my mind. You have a copy of the scriptures, turn to Matthew 11. This is the, I want to share with you, when Jesus, uh, when John the Baptist was in prison, about to get his head cut off. You remember that story? Right? So John the Baptist, a man of integrity, a resilient disciple, somebody that is wild, right? He was out there with locusts and honey and crazy clothes and baptized Jesus. I mean, if there's anybody you think is strong in your faith, John the Baptist, right? Okay, maybe nobody. Cool. I think he's strong. But he's in this moment. And why was he in the moment? Why was he about to get his head cut off? Because he was a man of integrity. Because he was calling somebody out for their sin. Right? And then, and then a, 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 an offer was made. Hey, I'll dance naked before you, king, if you give me somebody's head on a platter. So she did. And what happened? I want John the Baptist. So John is about to get his head cut off. He's experiencing a major crisis an external crisis, I'm in prison, I'm about to die. An internal crisis, I heard that Jesus is in my town, why is he not coming to help me? What's going on? Probably a philosophical crisis too, does God really love me? I've given my life, I've done it, what is going on, right? So what does Jesus do? Verses one and two says, um, and when Jesus had finished instructing his disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of Christ, he sent his word to his disciples and he said to them, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? Are you the one? Because I'm doubting, right? Because it doesn't feel like it, doesn't seem like it. Are you the one? Now, when I was, when I was studying and preparing for this, I asked four or five different people. I said, do you remember that story? They said, yeah. I said, what did Jesus say? Are you the one? What, what was his response? Everybody said, oh man, um, I am he. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I have the one that come. Every single person that I asked responded to me that Jesus gave them a propositional truth, a statement, everyone. You know what Jesus said? Jesus answered, go and tell John what you hear and see. Mm. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, the leopards are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have good news preached to them. Do you see it? Do you see what Jesus was doing? He's, he was giving John an answer. He was drawing John's mind back to his real life experiences with a living God. He could have said, yes, I'm the one. But he wanted to draw John's memory. 
back to a living God. He wanted to draw John's memory back to the God that he saw, he felt, he touched. He's like, you remember, John? You remember when that guy was blind? I spit in the dirt, I pick it up, I put it on his eyes, and he saw? Do you remember Lazarus? You remember when we went over there, and, he, and, and, and I went in the room, and he came out, and he rose from the dead? You remember how the Romans, they go to tax the poor, but we actually go and serve the poor? We preach the good news to the poor? Do you remember that, John? I was like, wow. See, people, our students, are not asking just for statements of truth. They want to see the living God. They want to see, is it real in your life? Is he alive? The, the, the answer to the survey is, is he alive and active today? Now, I get it. You're like, I can't heal the blind or make a leopard walk or raise the dead. I preach good news to the poor, you know. I'll pick that one. That one's probably the easiest one, right? I was a youth pastor at Living Word, and we were in a church softball league. Dave Francis was one of our elders, and he was running to first base, and the guy picked up the ball, and he threw it. He had a rope, hit him. Guy was running to first base, hit Dave right in the side of the head. Dave went immediately unconscious, fell on the ground. There's bleeding out the ear. Knew it was bad. Emergencies came, rushed, picked him up, took him to the emergency hospital. Our whole church rushed to the hospital. And there was people all over that waiting room on their knees praying, begging God, God, please spare his life. God, please spare his life. They put him on that ventilation and God spared his life. It was, a, it was, a, a, little, it was a, a road to recovery, and I remember it was about two months into that road of recovery, and, and he had to wear a patch because he couldn't see, because when, when he takes the patches off, his eyes were crossed, so he, and, and the doctor said, it's probably impossible that this will be like, your eyes will be like this for the rest of your life. And so in our student ministry, not specifically for this, but I was in the process of trying to teach my students uh, the power of prayer. So we had a night of prayer where it was going to be interactive, where we had one room where there was a cross. It was a lot like the prayer chapel at Snowbird, right, that you can go in and, you, you know, you could write, you're struggling with a sin, you can nail it to the cross. And then there was another room where we had these, these, these uh, boards, right, and, and we would just write specific prayers. And on one of those boards was Dave Francis. And so we put that board and students would go around. There's a couple other stations they'd go around, but students one by one would come and they would kneel and pray and they would pray, God, we pray that you give Dave sight. We pray that you give Dave sight back. Two weeks on a Sunday morning, Dave comes over and he says, hey, John. Hey, he's like, hey, I heard that you in your prayer thing had my name and I want you to know I can see. And he said, I want you to know I can see. The blind see. I could tell you story after story. I could tell you story about Spencer, who I was working with, who was a meth head, who got arrested. He, he, he went to prison, you know, and, and, and we felt like it was hopeless. He wrote us a letter in there and saying, hey, I committed my life to Jesus. And we thought, yeah, jailhouse gospel, right? Little faith that we had. And he came out of prison and he had given his life to Jesus and he was sober. He has a successful business and I'm good friends with him today. The dead are raised. I remember when I took my youth group to New Orleans after Hurricane Katrina, and that room was, that city was ravaged. It was destroyed. The government couldn't take care of it. It wasn't enough. 
I remember, this is a true story, FEMA ran out of meals and they had to go to the Southern Baptist Convention who had set up multiple churches and disaster relief and it was a Southern Baptist Convention that was providing meals for that whole city. You won't hear that in the paper. And we went there as a, as a youth group and we were serving and loving and sacrificing and they raised their money and they were giving it. You know what? Because the good news was preached to the poor. It was lived to the poor. You have stories, right? You have stories. The dead are rise. The dead do rise. People are healed. It might look like something different it might not look like this, but I'm telling you, I've seen the power of God, and your students need to see the power of God, and they can. We used to call it testimony, right? Everybody in this room has a testimony. I guarantee you, if you shared with me your testimony, you would talk to me about an experience that you had with a living God that changed your life. See, hopefully, what I'm encouraging you is, you're teaching your students, hey, I read the Bible. I read the Bible, and then you know what happens? God spoke to me. When God speaks to me, you know what's next? The scripture is the word of God. You hear that? The scripture are the word of God. We believe that, we believe that's true. But these students are like, hey, and we encourage these students, hey, just read the Bible once a week, couple times a week, four times a week. And guess what? The students that come back to me, in fact, in my old church, the three, my three core leaders that are still passionately following for Jesus, following Jesus in the midst of some crazy culture that they're in. You know what the common thread is? They believe in the word of God. You know why they believe in the word of God? We simply got together and I said, hey, read the Bible. They started to read and said, what is God speaking to you? And over time, God would speak to them something that they thought, you guys have had that experience, right? We teach them how to pray. We walk with them as they pray. And then God answers their prayers. And then you know what their response is? God is active in the world today. God is alive. We teach them to serve others. In fact, we invite them to serve with us. And then they experience God using them or working through them. You know what the response is? God has a purpose for my life. See, we start with the scriptures are God's word. God is active, he's alive. And God has a purpose for your life. But we need to walk with them, we need to pull them in, we need to draw them in, we need to journey with them and show them that yes, the word of God is alive and it is powerful and it could break curses in your life. The brokenness, the damage that you're coming through, it'll bring healing into your life. Yes, God is active today, have you prayed about it? Sometimes we, as Christians for so long, right, it's like sometimes we take prayer for granted until you start writing your prayers down and you start seeing, I, you know, I just encourage you, just go back in your memory. Those desperate prayers that you prayed and God answered. Oh yeah, I'm almost done. I'm over. Okay, I'm gonna wrap up. Sorry. 
Okay, I'm gonna close. What does it look like for you to create resilient disciples in your ministry? Because resilient disciples are staying strong. The culture is not moving them away from Jesus. And in fact, what's happening is they're becoming more of a light in a dark generation. What does it look like for you to help your students connect to a living God who is alive today? Now this is a promise. The secular vision of the world is failing. The secular vision, the humanistic vision, the postmodern vision of the world is failing and it will fail. We have the most anxious, broken, depressed relationships are unhealthy and, and destroying themselves. They are the reason there's an elevation of mental health. Uh, let me just step back. Sin is destructive. The secular vision of humanity will fail. But you know what won't? Jesus. Jesus. Mm. I'm telling you, revival is coming. And it's happening in your churches with this younger generation who's connecting to Jesus in a real way and is who, gonna, who is going to be the light of the living God for our new world. I'm going to close in prayer. Father, thank you for these uh, youth pastors, and I pray that you would just continue to encourage them, God, in their ministry. Thank you that you are alive, God. Thank you that you answer prayers, that you speak to us in your word, God. Thank you that you allow us to be a part of your kingdom. God, we're just um, so thankful to serve you. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. We hope this has encouraged you in your walk with Christ. Be sure to give us a rating and review. And for more Snowbird content, check out our other podcast, No Sanity Required.